Hello and welcome to the Blue Tech Thought Leadership interview series. In this episode, we speak to Paul Hawken, world-renowned author of Drawdown and Regeneration. We're looking forward to having Paul as a Blue Note speaker for our upcoming conference, Blue Tech Forum in Vancouver this June. And we are very excited to sit down with him and speak to him about the inspiration for his books, water and climate solutions, and how corporations can play a large role in progressing us towards a more sustainable future. We hope you enjoy the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here joining us today. Um, you know, for, for those who may or may not be familiar with your work, it's worth recapping. Um, you've kind of a, a man for all seasons, I would say, a Renaissance man in many respects, an environmentalist, an entrepreneur, an author, an activist. You've dedicated your life to environmental sustainability and really looking at it in the broader context of both society, business and the environment. And that interconnected view, that holistic view, is perhaps what informs a lot of your work. Um, you've founded ecologically conscious businesses. You've published numerous books, many of which I've now had the opportunity to read, including Blessed Unrest, Drawdown, and your most latest book, Regeneration. I'd, be, I'd love to hear from you whether you feel it was a journey that led you to writing Regeneration that links your work and for people who may be unfamiliar with what regeneration means, it would be good to talk through what that means to you. Sure. I mean, the every book I write is about learning, and I write to learn, not to know, not because I know and you don't. It's that's it's a, that's up to that, that's upside down backwards to me. And so every book is a learning journey, and uh, which why it's so enjoyable. And you know, I laughed once. I was sitting on my houseboat. And uh, outside, and I was reading, and I had a pet seagull. Pet meaning that it, it always came to me and defended the houseboat furiously against other seagulls because uh, I fed it. And it was just a beautiful day, and I realized I was working. <laughs> like I'm working, I'm reading, I'm re- doing research. You know, that was for natural capitalism at the time. But um, and I still feel that way about my writing and regeneration was a, a kind of a culmination in some ways although i have another book call coming which i can show you in screen share but um but regeneration to me uh i, I it really comes from uh, observing the sort of the environmental movement the sta- sustainability movement the climate movement you know watching them obviously being a part of them in 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 sunday ways but um actually seeing where they worked and the impact they made and see where I thought they failed. And I say fail only in the sense that I don't think people's actions were failing, but I think the communication was failing. That was how, um, and particularly the climate movement was trying to communicate the need and the urgency uh, of action to a larger audience, a lo- you know, a larger uh, uh, number and types of people in the world and so forth, you know, that didn't know, didn't have the science, didn't have the background. And so um, the generation and Drawdown very much about that, trying to, you know, communicate it in a very different way. And and the way it started, Paul, is really, I mean, the science is like, I mean, in the public sphere, it was 45, 50 years old, you know, and I was at Stanford Research Institute uh, when I was schooled uh, in the physics and biophysics of climate. Uh, And um, they, or 
knew then or we know then what we know now and we knew very well you know what the impacts uh, would be of global warming uh, it's not a mystery uh, and but what happened is that there was not much attention paid to it and scientists no noted that and were kind of frustrated by it and so that's when the language came out its future existential threat and you know as if that was going to you know rally the troops and it did not of course because the human brain doesn't uh, think that way and doesn't worry about future existential threats yeah we're all here because our ancestors took care of current existential threats in a really good way um, and so it's just not an undeveloped part of the brain and um, and so activists picked that up picked up the kind of the the laxity with which it was being taken uh, up by science, uh, by other scientists, by governments, by corporations, etc., and started to use fear and shame and guilt as ways to motivate people. Like, if we don't do this, you know, this terrible thing's going to happen, and you're responsible, and your car, you're this, you're that, and you know, a, a, a pretty heady brew of you know threat, fear, shame, blame, guilt. <laughs> it doesn't work at all, and it hasn't worked for me. You know, I was just like, well, why are we communicating that way? And I understood from the sense of urgency, and you know, I mean, the science is incredible. You know, I mean, so it wasn't the science; it was just like, and my, I'm an English major. I'm not a scientist, you know. And so I look at words, parse them. That's why, you know, I have so much respect for Irish writers, you know, like, how, the, how do they get there? You know, it's English. I speak English, but they do it differently. And um, <clears throat> uh, so thinking words are very powerful. You know, that's the thing, even though so much are, are they're used too much now, I think, and, 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 and sort of polluted by advertising and uh, you know, manipulation of language, but so forth. But they're very, very powerful, the spoken word and the written word. And so I began to think about that in a, in a, in a way that um, started to parse the language, you know, parse the statements were being made. And probably the, the quintessential one was the, the fight, combat, tackle climate change, you know, which is still to this moment used in The Guardian and, you know, Financial Times and the Post and, you know, everybody's using that language, you know, fight, combat and tackle, you know, Bill Gates, everything. We're going to fix it, you know, whatever it is. A, it's combative as opposed to collaborative and, and B, it reinforces the dichotomy that it's over there and, and Lord knows we're going to sort it out. Well, yeah, it's othering language and the climate is actually kith and kin with the biosphere. And one's gaseous and one's material, but just just like us, part of it's gaseous, our lungs, CO two and oxygen, we breathe in and respire, and then we have matter, we have molecules, we have stuff, you know, and so does the earth. And so to make that to distinction to make that a distinction as if it was out there somewhere, but we're here, um, is again part of that othering thing, but also uh, not recognizing that the climate is perfect, and so why would we want to fight climate? We want to change what's causing warming. As opposed to fighting it, yeah. Um, no, we want to look at what's causing it. That's us, what we do. Well, one of the most hopeful messages from Regeneration is this, and maybe this is part of your learning through the writing, perhaps, it was that if we can get to zero, that things get better a lot faster than we thought, or things don't get as bad inevitably. It's not like a super tanker, which which I think was the original thought process around climate change, that Lord, it was already a train, the train had left the station. And But I think there's something there, and if we get to zero, that it can arrest 
what we're observing or the rate of it. Yes. Uh, there was two messages in the sixth assessment that came out, which I think were overlooked by the media. I thought they should have, you know, sort of underlined them and uh, more. And one of them is exactly that, that we have been told for decades, really, that, you know, once we stopped, you know, we had net zero emissions, you know, we weren't emitting more greenhouse gases. Uh, <clears throat> they were being sequestered naturally in the carbon cycle that, you know, heating would continue for decades, if not centuries and centuries, you know, which is not a big incentive, you know, for a civilization to change what it does. You know, in other words, we're screwed. And um, what came out, you know, uh, was a very clear statement saying that, no, what we know now is that the moment uh, the greenhouse gases stop increasing and so forth, you know, in a very relatively very short time, you get an abatement of heating, of warming. Uh, and that came out of the IPCC, you know, so, uh, and the other thing came out was that they, they actually said, they, they said that actually there is a one-to-one -one ratio between uh, increments of greenhouse gases and heating. And it was also speculated that there would be sort of a logarithmic or geometric or asymptotic or other types of, you know, uh, relationships between heating uh, and uh, and warming and said, no, it's a one-to-one -one ratio. And so those are two really important things that came out of it. And the most important being that as soon as we uh, stop emitting and then actually sequestering, drawing down, you know, the carbon that's in the atmosphere, it came from here after all, uh, that actually in a relatively short time, we can see uh, not only heating stop, but actually cooling begin. You see, I think that's empowering. Um you know, Hans Rosen in his book Factfulness said oftentimes when you say things are getting better in the developing world, you, people might say, well, you're, you're just dismissing the problem. But, but you're not. You can hold two ideas in your head at the same time that things are bad today, but getting better. They're not mutually opposing. And I think as long as we, you know, only hold on to this really kind of a thing that makes people feel very disempowered and, you know, what can you do? Um, and... The other thing that fascinated me about a message from her generation was, and I think this maybe I saw in Blessed Unrest as well, you don't see such a difference between social causes and social movements and environmental movements and environmental causes. I think you see a link between the two. Uh, it, it's stronger than a link. To me, it's like you know, looking at your hand and one side's social, one side's environmental. It's one hand. You know, They're indistinguishable. Uh, and that... Uh, again, is that othering that we've done and environmental movement is frankly, you know, guilty for that, you know. Uh, it was very, uh, it came from privilege, it came, <laughs> you know, from uh, the environmental movement I wrote about at Blessed Rest came from privileged people, no question about it, you know, hunting, fishing, protection, for whom? And who was, dis who was dislocated? What tribal lands had you, were you protecting and making parks out of, you know? And what happened to the people who lived there for, you know, thousands and thousands of years? And so it was very privileged. And so the early sustainability environmental movement was uh, continuing to be so. Um, and in, in, in that way, saw society as a kind of a menace, you know, to the environment as opposed to seeing uh, uh, a culture, in fact, a uh, North America. Let's talk about North America. North America had been populated for ten thousand years or more, 
and uh, we think now as much as 30,000 in certain places and so forth. We're not sure, but we're finding things that keep pushing back the time in which human habitation. Now we know that of all the continents, this was inhabited the, 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 the latest. I mean, you know, Africa the longest, you know, so we do know that. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the idea that somehow we came into a pristine environment, you know, we had 500 different cultures in, you know, Turtle Island, North America and Canada, 500 different tribal nations and cultures, you know, that lived here and that had been uh, interacting with it for thousands of years, you know. And so there's nothing we saw that was actually pristine, you know, even though it was pristine from the point of view of a European looking at, you know, coming from Scotland, Ireland, the UK or France or whatever, you know, of course, it, it's like, wow, you know, it's astonishing, you know, the trees, the rivers, the environment, the can I mean, it's beautiful, you know, but... I mean, the Amazon, people, you know, you cover this, that when we get food from trees is a great way of, you're not destroying the soil, you're retaining the microbiome, etc. that if you really look close at the Amazon, it looked to us like it was a wild forest, but people had been working with that for, for you know, a long time. There was a wonderful book by a friend of mine called The Primary Forest, and he uh, uh, is teaching, he was from Cambridge, you know, but he went to the Bor uh, in Borneo to, uh, it's called The Primary Forest, and the thought was, he was 40,000 years old, you know, untouched by human beings, you know, the, you know, <laughs> you know elegiac, beautiful, you know, primitive, original, and he went there with an ethnobotanist and they w walked into the forest and then they stood there for a day and they just kept pivoting, you know, degree by degree by degree by degree. And the ethnobotanist, you know, pointed out what he was seeing in terms of, you know, obviously the dipterocarps, the trees, you know, the biggest trees, you know, but obviously the smaller trees, you know, the perennials, the bushes, you know, the vines. And he realized before the day was over that everything he was seeing there had been placed by a human being. And that over 40,000 years, what happened is these big trees, you know, that are just magnificent, they would die. And as when they died, they would clear out a huge space in the ocean. You know? and, really? and ocean. Did I say ocean? I'm going to forest. They fell into the forest and they opened up sunlight. And then they would take cuttings and seeds and so forth and plant them there. Um, and... Uh -huh. uh, and that was the forest that they were seeing, you know, it's this primary virgin forest. You see, that's the interconnectedness and the fact that we're, we're not, you know, and even some belief systems reflect this, that nature needs us to be, you know, that we're, we're part of it as well. And I think I'd be curious to know, I mean, I, I, I love the fact that what's good for us socially, generally speaking, can also be very positive for the environment. And you take that as you said, maybe privileged idea of taking a land that was a home to somebody and making it a national park. But equally, where we see the destruction is where people are poor and nobody could blame a Brazilian individual farmer for, 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 for just wanting to provide something for his family locally. And as far as that one person's concerned, it's a relatively small bit of land. But if you can help everyone there, you're also going to help the environment. And that's why a lot of your solutions in regeneration focus on that both sides of that. And I'd be curious to know, I know that, you know, one of the things that you study is, I believe, Buddhist thought processes and philosophy. To what extent has that also informed your thinking on environmental issues? Is there a synergy there between the two? There is, and I think it also, specifically to climate, uh, remember we talked about future existential threat, you know, but the, the, the vast majority of the world wakes up every morning with current existential threat. 
I mean, they're worried about food, food security, about security, period. They're worried about warmth, clothing, education, healthcare, uh, where they're going to get the job, income. I mean, they, and this is true in America as well. I mean, we're not just talking about so-called developing nations. And, um, and so, the, 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 again, the climate movement has addressed itself to primarily the things that, you know, the top 10% of, you know, income earners in the world do and buy, you know, and they are responsible for 56% of emissions. So it makes sense, you know, the top 10%. But at the same time, if we're going to solve this and so forth, we have to see the climate solutions in, with a completely different lens and eyes than the one we're looking at, which is that uh, it, it, if, we, if, if we stripped away, if you look at regeneration.org and you look at all the list of challenges and solutions, you know, it's the most complete list in the world. Um, if you look at that list and you didn't have a climatologist, you know, that you knew and there was no climate scientist and we didn't understand extreme weather, uh, we would want to do every one of those solutions because they have so many cascading benefits in terms of water and health and food and warmth and security and and housing and 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 in in soil health you know and restoration and degraded land restoration i mean it just goes on and on and on you know and providing people with jobs that have purpose and meaning and dignity that's what they do and which that is such a lack in the world today and so i think that when we we kind of have still blinders on with respect to climate, you know, with, I think Tesla is a, is a, a huge contribution, you know, and, you know, I mean, definitely EVs, you know, will make a huge difference, but I, but, but, but I feel like we, we, we're kind of forgotten, you know, that we're one planet and we're one family in the largest sense of the word and so forth, you know, and if we're going to successfully reverse global warming, we have to, take care of each other you know we have to regenerate everything you know and it's not just you know our little town in connecticut you know or someplace you know or this patch of land or you know uh this municipality that's you know you know recycling all this green waste into compost and all that sort of stuff i mean all those things are fantastic i'm just saying is that we need bigger arms and i think that's what regeneration provides paul is a, a much bigger sense of possibility if you look at it in a completely different way, understanding the assaults on it, the insults, the what we're doing to water, which is really, really harming us and, and everyone around the world and so forth, but seeing it in a completely different way and our relationships to it uh, similarly. Well, you know, I think you imagine the world you would like to live in and what would you love to live in? And then work towards that. But, you know, creating a very, very large carbon vacuum and just burying it very, very deep in the planet <laughs> is a very technological, technocratic solution to this problem. But, and it would certainly, you know, you, you, you'd draw down the carbon. But does it make the world a better place, a nicer place to live in? Not really. How, how could you warm for that particular vision? It's rather narrow. Whereas I think what you're describing is something that you can embrace at a much broader level. And I think, you know, for us, I, I work in the water sector and often we see our role as providing dealing with too little or too much or quality you know we look at climate change most people think there's going to be droughts and floods too much or too little and we say oh god well that's that's going to be a problem we're going to have to deal with recycling or other ways of finding water or desalination desalination is the equivalent of a, a carbon vacuum it's a very linear 
you know, solution to a problem, a very technocratic solution. And it's great. It has its place. It, it absolutely has its place. But the bit that when I then read the book, what blew my mind was that there's a connection, a much deeper connection between water and climate change than I'd ever realized. And that, you know, you have got some visions in there that we can, you know, become rainmakers and that you can shift to an abundance mindset. You know, that people can make rain, cool down the planet, rehydrate the land and turn the deserts green. Now that's yeah. some, yeah. Yeah. And we know how to do it and we're doing it. And because uh, as you said, you know, I mean, the, 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 the conversation tends to be about too much, too little, you know, and or too hot and too cold. Uh, and then quality, which is why we're polluting it, you know, and all that true, is all very, very true. Um, what I think we step back and one thing we should maybe acknowledge, you know, you don't have to believe it, but if you actually, you know, the data supports it, which is that we've dehydrated the earth. That is to say the amount of water that has been, um, you know, traditionally or traditionally for ages held in the soil. Uh, has been severely depleted by uh, ranching and farming and deforestation and you know industrial farming particularly and so forth so where is that water well it's you know in the air it's in the oceans you know and um, and so when we look at something like regenerative agriculture in the truest deepest sense of the word not in the sort of superficial way um, what it does is create more life in the soil and that's healthier soil and healthier soil means more life and you know, they go together. And um, as you create more health in the soil, that is more cro my microbial life, you know, bacteria and virus and protozoa, etc. cetera. Uh, basically all those creatures down there are actually with all due respect, eating each other. <laughs> They're not just living. <laughs> They're food for each other. And then the carbon chains get longer and the carbon chains get longer. They get sticky and black and they, form glomulin, glomulin makes the soil very friable and permeable. And, uh, and then so when you get water, you get rain, uh, the infiltration rates uh, can be 10, 20, 30 X greater than the original farm, you know, which is turning into dirt and hard pan uh, and causing erosion and runoff. And the runoff is taking chemicals with it, which is the nitrogenous applications of synthetic fertilizer, the phosphates, the phosphorus and so forth, which is causing havoc in our rivers and dead zones in our oceans and so forth. So you have an unvirtuous circle, which you can flip to a virtuous circle um, by um, uh, 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 having regenerative agricultural techniques and so forth. But then what happens is you're creating a farming system that's resilient, which is now you have too little water. Okay, that year and next year. But, but you have your earth now, your farm is a reservoir an incredible reservoir. So you have that resiliency, which you don't have when you're completely dependent on chemicals, you know, in inputs, you know, for so-called healthier plant, you know. And uh, and now you either have plants that don't do well die or you have plants that uh, basically have to be irrigated from wells, you know, that are going down and drawing down aquifers, you know, which are ancient fossil water, you know. And so that's the situation we're in right now. And so, first of all, we have to look at our ranching and agricultural methods. We know how to farm and ranch or graze or uh, manage animals in such a way that it produces more life in the soil. And so, you know, check number one, we know how to do that. 
And the other thing we have two, next thing is 2 billion hectares of degraded land caused by, you know, farming techniques, deforestation, you know, overgrazing, uh, and more and more about fires, but nevertheless degraded land. And that's, you know, I mean, that's 5 billion acres. And that is just waiting for uh, people and money and investment and brilliance and imagination and hard work and so forth to change that. And we talk about it in, in the book about degraded land restoration and it's happening all over the world. And there's also in regeneration.org and Nexus and you, you can get a, 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 a description of all the different organizations and people and techniques and, and the videos and books and classes and you know all the ways it can teach you how to restore the land. And when you restore land, you're restoring life to the land and you're bringing back water into the land. And then you get to the third thing, which is the water cycle itself. Whereas, you know, we, as kids, I know we always just thought there was one water cycle, you know, you know, the oceans, you know, the, the warmth of the sun and the water came up and came in land and dropped rain, you know, but actually 60 to 70% of all water comes from the land. It doesn't come from oceans. It's called the short water cycle. Um, we've known that for a while, but what we didn't know until recently uh, was that uh, water nucleates to form rain? Water has to nucleate that is to something, and it, it, otherwise it's just gas, you know, and it's not water at all. And it needs something, you know, to uh, do that with. And we were had um, <clears throat> thought that it was dust, you know, and. And what we know now is actually bacteria is more effective in terms of nucleating water because you're not going to get a drop until you have the first, you know, bit of nucleation. Then after that, water attracts the water really easily and gets to be big, you know, becomes, you know, a raindrop or a hailstone or whatever. And um, we know that bacteria, the, the, the bacteria have proteins and the proteins are a much better uh, source for water to nucleate than dust. And so what we're seeing uh, in the science and so forth is the recognition that plants, the bacteria that's in the atmosphere, which is full of bacteria, by the way, uh, which we didn't realize, uh, is coming from the, the, the green world, the plant world, the forests, you know, the crops and so forth. And I mean, one study in Kenya showed that, you know, a scientist was so, uh, I forget Jeremy, I forget his name right now, I'm sorry, but you know, was wondering why there were so many hailstones, uh, hailstorms in this part of uh, uh, Kenya, you know, where tea plantations were, and then, <clears throat> you know, basically melted the, the, the hail and then, you know, sequenced the bacteria and found out the bacteria that was primarily um, found in the hail was the bacteria from the tea plants themselves, you know, it was, was being generated by the plants. So we now have an insight into this relationship between what we do on the surface of the earth, that is, you know, greening it, trees, forests, plantations, whatever, and so forth, and the water cycle. And so you put all, all three of these together, Jan, you know, you degraded land restoration, and then what we know about this relationship is in, in, with water, rain, uh, is that uh, there's no question that with the right resources and instruction, education, and so forth, um, we could reverse uh, the dehydration and rehydrate uh, the earth. The, yeah, the fact that it, it is desiccated, and we, you can see that from subsidence in cities like Mexico City, J Jakarta, all over the world, 
the fact that if you rehydrated it, it has a cooling effect is fascinating. You know, one of my first proper jobs, I guess, was with the World Wildlife Fund when I left university. I was working in the Highland Rainforest in Malaysia. And, you know, to your point that everything down there is eating everything else, the thing that blew my mind was how much dead stuff there was in the forest. It was alive, but a, a decent proportion of that stuff was just lying on the ground. Uh, it seemed to me there was almost as much stuff in decay as there was in life. That was what well, I looked around, because it was really hard to walk through, because yeah. we were trying to survey a, a one-hectare quadrant. It would take me so long to walk, you know, a relatively short distance, because we were growing over these dead trees and plants and everything else. But we now know that the rainforest creates the water because it evaporates it. But this idea that there's bacteria on the leaves of these plants that get lifted into the air, lofted up there, that create the seeds for the lower water cycle at a lower level rather than this higher water cycle. And I think that happens in the oceans as well, that there, there are also proteins or if it's not proteins, it's some chemicals which are released from the ocean that also seed clouds. Yeah, from the phytoplankton, the zooplankton, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it, it's so... Um, it's so beautiful what, what you're describing, you know, and what, you know, it's like, it's really, I feel like global warming is asking us to come home. <laughs> like, <laughs> can you all come home? And, and, and I mean that in the home, and first of all, heart is home, you know what I mean? But to, to, to have this sensibility about what's possible, you know, and falling in love, you know, with this idea of actually, you know, regenerating life on earth, you know, I mean, what a job description, you know, and, yeah. The best job description I know of, uh, and we know how to do it. We know how to do it. And and of course, it it will not only create water abundance for us, but it will also help us deal with when we do have too much water. And of course, a storm, we've language right. You say is important. Storm water immediately conjures up negative connotations. Oh, we got to yeah. get this stuff out of here as quick as we possibly can. I mean. If this was the Nabataeans and Petra and Jordan, they'd have said, this is fantastic. Whoa, it has rained for six months. We better hang on to this water. And, you know, it'll be around for the future. And that's one of Aoife and I and the team are learning about the Amunas in Peru, where this was used in, you know, these are pre-Columbian, pre-Incan canals that slowed the water down. And a journalist called Erica Guys writes about this very well, what she calls the slow water movement. That we have this fast water cycle. It's like, just move it quick fast, in a straight line, <laughs> preferably in a concrete channel or a pipe. And, yeah. you know, if you slow it down, it, it begins to do what it wants to do, which is to soak into the ground. And we've got really interesting things we'd like to do. One is to actually build a system, a biomatrix aquatic habitat unit, downtown in Stanley Park, and another one in Trout Lake. Because that encourages people to come out and enjoy that area, and particularly Trout Lake here actually is a is a, an area that could benefit from summer generation, and it will encourage people to come out and value it. And of course, when they're there and they value it, they're more likely to find it unconscionable that you would take water and leak it. You know, I look at the Columbia River; it doesn't even reach the ocean any longer, but we probably lose thirty percent of that water before it ever reaches the tap. And from a value system. Why would you want to do it? Why would you let that happen? And I think it becomes with that connection to it. So it becomes unconscionable. Well, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't want that to happen. Well, in the, the first line of the book is regeneration means bringing life at the center of every act and decision. And, and every act is design, it's engineering, it's construction, it's building. 
Um, but cities are designed, or, and, and often too much of the city is by default, so to speak, you know, developers or this or that. But I mean, I think we're at the point now, especially with cities like Vancouver and others, you know, where they are, they are, it's like, well, let's look at the whole, let's look at what's going on here. And, and life includes people and children and wonder and awe, not just, you know, uh, egrets and salmon, you know, uh, salmon and runs and so forth, you know. And so uh, when you when you restore a water feature in a city, you know, and make it accessible and so forth, you know, I mean, it's going to become a center, you know, it's on the epicenter, you know, for coffee shops, for bookstores, for people, you know, lying in the sun, you know. Uh, talking, meeting, whatever, and so forth, you know. And so this is about bringing cities back to life, you know. And 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 you do it with two things, you know, water and plants. And that's how you bring cities back to life in that sense, uh, you know. Because people will do it all by themselves if they want to be outside in the city and they feel safe, you know. They'll bring it back to life. We don't need to figure that one out, you know. They'll do it, you know, with cafes, with coffee shops, with dances, with festivals, you know, with... You know, I mean, they'll spend more time outside because it's where they want to be. Um, and so I love what uh, Stefano Boeri is doing in Italy. He, uh, Stefano is like, you know, probably the leader. And, uh, uh, and instead of putting trees in the cities, talking about put cities in a forest, existing mm-hmm. cities, you know, uh, and, and, and it's beautiful. Paul, we are so excited to have you as a Blue Note speaker for our upcoming event in Vancouver Blue Tech Forum. A lot of the folks there genuinely do want to be part of, of a movement. We can sense that. We do. We pick that up from our conversations with them. So you're going to have like large corporations who are making commitments, bold, ambitious, audacious commitments, oftentimes to be positive, net zero carbon or net zero water. And, you know, by 2030, so imminent. And what I find inspiring about that is you know that if these corporations set their mind to doing that, they can achieve it because they have the wherewithal, they have the resources. Today it's different. And I mean, I'm not saying with every corporation, but with corporations that I work with and know, and you can see it in people's eyes. It's the the CEOs uh, uh, of these companies get it. They get it not in a way that is, you know, interpreted to them by the Wall Street Journal or Barron's or something else, you know. They get it the way their daughter or son get it, you know. I mean, where youth get it, where it's just like, holy, mm, fill in the blank. And, And they find themselves, due to their abilities and management skills and leadership skills, the CEO of this sprawling, huge company, you know, with supply chains that go forever. And and they have a choice to leave and go do something, you know, or to stay and make a difference because they have been privileged with this position, you know. And for example, what you're seeing with Nestle, which is the biggest food company in the world and who has lots of you know, a record from the past, you know, of, of really screwing up, you know, and they'd be the first to admit it, um, you know, on plastic, on baby formulas in Africa and so forth, you know, I mean, now this is three, four CEOs since then, you know, uh, <clears throat> the, new, the new CEO is extraordinary. Their commitment is to uh, basically uh, transition their one million 
farms in their supply chain to regenerative agriculture. And they're absolutely sincere and dead set on this. This is not for publicity, you know. And why do they want to do it? And this goes really right to this water issue, which is that too much, too little. This is hurting, hitting, and, and too hot, too cold. You know, their supply chain everywhere in the world, they're the biggest chocolate company, you know, in the world, biggest cacao company, coffee and chocolate. They're number one, you know, in Switzerland. It's so funny. Who's the biggest coffee exporter, you say? Switzerland, you know, but <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, and um, so that's 600,000 smallholders, you know, farms, you know, three, four acres, you know, and or five acres or two acres or whatever. And then 400,000, you know, more row crop farmers, you know, from Argentina to the United States to Canada to France to, you know, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, but they are spending a billion and a half dollars to help the farmers make the transition as opposed to my way or the highway, here's the standard, if you don't meet it, we won't buy from you. No, they are working closely with their farmers. And the reason they're doing it is what we spoke about early. The getting there as well, when you describe that engagement between Nestle and for example, the farmers, it requires a degree of reciprocity, a degree of partnering, a degree of trust as well in that to get there, you do need to engage with people. And that's one of the other things we want to explore because we're seeing more, more of that type of collaboration going on than we had before. Absolutely. It, and the very fact that Nestle approaches this as a collaborative exercise, not, as I said, you know, our way or the highway. Uh, second, you know, they have farmers that go back five generations. So, I mean, this isn't like, you know, lowest bidder. They, 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 they have relationships that are almost familial, really, when you think about it in terms of the farmer, the families, the generational changes, both in Nestle and, you know, with these farmers and so forth. You know, to some extent, things like that example, you know, we use the term lighthouses here at Blue Tech, and we use that metaphor in the film Bravely World, you know, kind of a beacon that you can look at as a, as a pathway forward. And I think those types of examples are tangible and, and can help people to to see what needs to be done. And the final piece on that is, you know, when I first started to correspond about some of our ideas and solutions, we often in this sector feel that water is so fragmented and hyper-local that what, what one does in Cape Town ha hasn't really a benefit to that person in Chennai. Or, but, you know, you, you made the point that no, there is connection and that although it's fragmented, that it does, you can have a difference. And I think when you think about water in the terms of, in the terms of climate, and land and everything else, then perhaps it takes away that sense of fragmentation and, uh, and hyper-localization, which means that what you do in one spot does actually or can actually have a wider effect. It's interesting because one of the things that I think happened with the climate movement is there was a, a I would call a hyper-individuation of the solution, which is use cold water in your washing machine. I mean, you know, even the Union of Concerned Scientists, you know, when I started Drawdown, I looked up, you know, the top solutions to, you know, global warming, and they had put a power strip in your home entertainment center. I mean, seriously, I mean, it was like, really? I don't have a home entertainment center. My, <laughs> but I mean, you know, and recycle and, this, you know, these things which are, you know, sort of like, okay, sort of proverbs, you know, and, um, 
And that's still how it goes on to this day. And so what happened is that people felt like, well, that's so inadequate to the task at hand. They know that, you know, like, well, we have a serious problem. You're telling me to put a power strip in. And, and then people look to government. They look to the IPCC. They look to the Conference of the Parties. They look to these huge national and international governing bodies, you know, to solve the problem, you know, and, and prayed and hoped. And then, you know, it's kind of like after 26 Conference of the Parties, they're still hoping and wishing you know, and not seeing that that level of dysfunctionality with all due respect to governments and with some very few exceptions and so forth is not going to solve the problem. We hope they do and anything they do do there is great. So no question about it. We'll keep voting and lobbying and trying to, you know, create changes. I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm saying we should definitely do that. But the solution's in the middle. And it's between the individual and these huge entities. You know, it all climate solutions or local hyperlocalization. Where else do they start? Where else can you do it? There is no other place you can do it. And so that goes back to what I was saying about regeneration.org and Nexus about all the different levels of agency, you know, that people can either create or participate in, you know, that are, you know, neighborhood, our city, our school, you know, our county, our province, our you know, uh, our company, you know, uh, you know, our, all these different levels where we have respect, we have, you know, mutual respect, we have agency, we have knowledge, we have relationships. This is where we can make a difference. And the water is exactly the same as that. So I think that, you know, with the big, huge Suez and all these huge water companies, you know, sort of taking over municipalities and, and somehow, well, it's in good hands, you know, we have lost that sense that water is always local and uh and and it's it's a local affair you know and the solutions are local uh and so again i think that's an, a really important message again local doesn't mean you know you know put a bucket under your shower you know and so and then take the water and go outside and you know pour it on the potted plants or something if, it's great if you do um but i don't mean local in that sense that hyper individuation of the problem you know or the solution but really agency and agency is everything with when it comes to water uh and participation yeah it's a great unifier you know people talk about the water wars and the apocalyptic side of things but there's been more water treaties than there have been water wars by by about an order of magnitude so it it can often be something something and it has historically been that people are more likely to find in their common interest to resolve actually so let, let, let's let's um, keep that you know to front of mind as we head into you know our, our time in Vancouver together, where the focus is on collaboration across the supply chain, across the value chain, um, having local effect, but with the vision. And I think what you're helping to do is to provide a different way of thinking about that vision and a different way of thinking about water in the context of climate change that perhaps we haven't had before, and that that's new and that's inspiring, and you know. You, you go away with something from that that you take with you. So we're, we're very grateful for all of your work and for the time you've taken today to speak with us. And we're, we're excited to track your next book and uh, where you're going to next. And we, we hope we can help to be kind of a ripple around that and uh, amplify it. Hey, lovely. Thank you so much, Paul. And uh, it's joy. I look forward to being with you in June. Likewise. Thanks a million.